Welcome, everyone, to Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, Senior Fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Here on Generation Jihad, we cover the what used to be known as the Global War on Terror, or what we call the Long War. Um, and it's uh, it's been a long war. It's uh, you know since 9/11, we're over, we're well over 20 years. And although there, the Russia and Ukraine has dominated the headlines, there's still a lot going on out there. Um, you just had yesterday, you had U.S. generals say that the U.S. is losing visibility on terrorists in Afghanistan and Somalia. We always have to remember just because we want to end the endless wars, the enemy gets a vote. Today, we have a special guest and a, a colleague and, and also a good friend, Benham Ben Taliblu. He is a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. Say hello, Ben. Hey, everyone. Bill, uh, thanks for having me on. Danielle, thanks for helping with this uh, segment today. And it's great to be back on the podcast. Yeah, we we have to remember Danielle does the hard work behind the scenes. Uh, Thank you, Danielle, for all of your work. Ben, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, one of the things I, I really enjoy are our phone conversations. Oh, me too. It's, ha- it's half me the too. time I'm like, damn, we should have hit record. This was a podcast. And we had one of those conversations yesterday. And secretly, I, and, I'm, I'm uh, happy we did it sometimes because of the <laughs> other things. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of those conversations with Danielle would be heavily editing. That's for sure. Um, today, we're going to discuss uh, the, the, the March 12th missile strike in Iraq that was launched by Iran. It, it struck near the U.S. consulate in Erbil, Iraq. Benham, uh, tell us about that strike. What kind of missiles did Iran use in this ta- attack? So just to, to set a little bit of context for the strike, uh, so everyone knows what, what's going on, uh, it was reported uh, you know, in the late evening on March 12th, so early a.m. March 13, local time in Iraq, uh, actually, the time was, uh, I think, no coincidence because you've had a bunch of pro-Iranian networks and pro-Iranian figures across social media tweet the exact time of the strike, which was 1.20 in the morning, which was allegedly the same time that a U.S. drone strike killed Qasem Soleimani on January 3rd, 2020. So I guess consider this part of Iran's ongoing revenge, but also there's other drivers that we're going to unpack here. Uh, the Iranians fired a single-stage short-range ballistic missile. If you look at the English-language reporting, uh, about this strike, they say about a dozen. They don't say 12, they kind of continuously say a dozen. Uh, Iranian sources, which later owned up to the strike, uh, specifically say 10 of these single stage short range ballistic missiles. And we can get into, you know, why this is not the first time Iran has done it, but this missile, the Fateh 110, the Conqueror 110, uh, is a missile that has been upgraded at least eight times uh, inside Iran to include better range, better accuracy, you know, a heavier uh, payload, uh, you know, more mobility, more survivability, uh, and has been featured in multiple of these sorts of cross-border public ballistic missile operations that we've seen the Islamic Republic engage in a hell of a lot more of uh, since 2017. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for those. We can we can unpack those drivers, but this is a missile Iran feels comfortable with its performance. Uh, it, this is a missile Iran has used in the past and basically uh, will use in the future. So the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or the IRGC uh, uh, claimed credit for this attack. Um, why did the IRGC? What did the IRGC say was the target of this missile attack? So there's been conflicting reports of, of the initial target. And again, going back to that Saturday evening, I remember I was actually having a, a cigar with a friend, just kind of watching it unfold, watching it come in. Uh, not that I knew the attack was coming, of course, but uh, it ruined a lovely Saturday evening. And initially- Ben, if I may interrupt you um, really quick, I always yeah. say this, you know, not only are terrorists and terrorist supporting states- evil, but they're inconsiderate. I can't tell you how many times they've wrecked my weekends, family vacations, family reunions (laughs) and whatnot. I really wish, you know, I wish they weren't evil, but I also wish they could occasionally check in on my schedule. That would be very nice. That would be very nice. I have a friend who I kind of officiated a wedding for in Singapore in 2019. And I think maybe a couple hours before the ceremony began is when he ran down the drone in June, 2019. And my friend was like, I knew, I knew Iran was going to ruin my wedding somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your train, chain of thought, but. Uh, no, no, it's okay. 
so yes, back to back to the strike. So initially, some of these uh, pro-Iranian Iraqi media outlets uh, had simply reported that there was a strike on or near the U.S. consulate of uh, in Erbil. Uh, the Iranians in the past had talked about threatening the Al Harir military facility, which, if I'm not mistaken, used to have U.S. forces stationed there, or may still have U.S. forces stationed there. Uh, but then an Iraqi uh, uh, pro-Iran Shia militia, Kataib Hezbollah, had actually said that the target was an Israeli facility. And this was revenge for an Israeli drone attack inside of Iran earlier. Now, some of those Iraqi media sites had uh, resisted saying that the attack came from Iranian territory. And instead, they simply said that there were attacks in the area. And some of them even went so far as to say they weren't ballistic missiles used, which are, you know, real heavy weapons of war. You can't really mask this stuff. They require launcher equipment, require prep. Even the the solid propellant ones, which require considerably less time to prep, still require prep. Um, They said that they were 14 122-millimeter grad rockets. So things that you might believe the militias already have. So we don't know if the militias tried to own up or try to get the Iranians to try to, you know, work through this kind of media cutout to avoid any kind of blame or retribution going to the Iranians. So it was very confusing the first few hours. There was a real fog of war. The Iranians hadn't said anything yet. Uh, there were pro-Iranian militias saying that the strike came from Iran. There were pro-Iranian militia stations saying that the strike simply happened. They were saying that it was on or near uh, the the facility in Erbil. Some had said it was near Erbil Airport. Then one militia, as we mentioned, Kataya Bezbollah, said it was retribution for uh, an Israeli attack. Uh, but then moments later, and moments, I mean, you know, simply hours later, uh, there were a couple of uh, updates to pro-IRGC uh, media outlets inside Iran, semi-official media stations like Tasnim and Farce, for instance, that carried an IRGC official press release saying that they had conducted a missile operation. So owning up to the fact that it had come from Iranian territory and in effect employing ballistic missiles, these more overt and attributable weapons of war. But then there was an IRGC source speaking to Tasnim in a separate story, again, all within hours, uh, saying that 10 of those Fata 110 short-range ballistic missiles had been employed and it was retribution uh, uh, for uh, against Israel. And it was specifically retribution for against Israel for an attack that had, quote, originated from Iraqi soil. And this was the Iranians looking to respond to the same jurisdiction that had been had the, the strike originated from. Shortly after this, you had some English language reporting drawing on some Iraqi social media uh, accounts talking about uh, this being a Israeli a response to the Israeli attack on Iran in February, which actually had been a, a drone attack against Iranian drone facilities, or Iranian drones, I should say. Uh, the Iranians had never publicized that attack before, but it turns out uh, that, that you know, some in the Israeli press were talking about it. And the big question here was, you know, what was the target? Was it actually uh, an Israeli facility? Was it actually a Mossad facility? Uh, the U.S. said there were no casualties. The U.S. said that the U.S. consulate there was fine. There was no real commentary about the Al-Harir facility. Uh, pictures that we had seen uh, showed uh, glass shattered from the Kurdistan 24 media station that was in the area, as well as a businessman's house that was basically wrecked that was close to the Barzani family, if I'm not mistaken, also in the area. But nothing of a Mossad seller per se. But you have the Iranians insisting that there was some kind of Mossad facility there, some kind of Israeli facility there. And you've had uh, some kind of increasing, not affirmation of this in the Western English language press, uh, but engagement with this Iranian talking point. You know, one could cynically look at this engagement and say, maybe this is, you know, the English language press, the American press looking to say, well, the attack was not against America, therefore America does not need to respond. But it could also be that they have sources. You know, there was a New York Times story that was basically saying, uh, hinting that that this Iranian allegation of an Israeli facility or at least an Israeli safe house or a place in this area where Israelis had operated in the past, they were basically hinting that that thesis was correct. And, you know, given how many IRGC assets Iran has in that area, it is totally possible for Iran to have surveilled that area well in advance uh, of the strike. Uh, so we know that Iran was looking to basically 
at least this is my conclusion, Iran was looking to basically employ ballistic missiles in a public military operation, looking to respond against Israel, particularly after uh, the loss of two of its colonels uh, in Syria uh, earlier this March. You've had uh, former IRGC folks, including the Iranian head of parliament, talk about uh, in wanting to engage in retribution for those attacks. So when you put the, the drone attack from February, the loss of the two colonels from March into this wider perspective, now you have a, a little bit more of a clearer, wider aperture as to how and why the regime may have uh, gone about using this we these weapons. So, you know, it strikes me as odd that if it's true that there was an uh, Israeli safe house or some type of whatever it was, it clearly isn't a large facility. At least that's that, that's what I'm hearing you say. Isn't using ballistic missiles to conduct a strike against a target like this overkill? I mean, the, the Iranians have an extensive network with within Iraq and even have close contacts with um, all of the Kurdish groups in in the north. I remember I recall back when um, IRGC, the, the U.S. detained, I want to say five or six I, senior IRGC officers in, in Erbil. Um, I want to say 2007, they tried to get Jaffari. Yeah, right. And, and you know, so they the the Iranians were able to get them freed. Um. So, yeah, it just it just seems odd to me that using ballistic missiles for a target such as that just seems off. And I mean, they have all kinds of means to to conduct a, a more subtle form of attack. I mean, deploying ballistic missiles is again, I will just say overkill here. You know, Bill, you, as always, you put your finger on the money. This is a, a revolution in real time. Uh, we are watching an Iranian national security strategy. I mentioned that this isn't the first such strike and that really we should have seen this coming because in 2017, Iran basically broke a two-decade silence uh, and, and it was a silence that governed publicized military operations from their own territory against foreign targets wherein ballistic missiles were employed as the primary weapon. You know, after the Iran-Iraq war, which was the conflict that basically spurred Iran to get these ballistic missiles, they, you know, just very tiny backgrounds, illicitly procured some from Syria, Libya, North Korea, uh, you know, reverse engineered them, began to grow these capabilities in the 90s. But throughout the 90s, they had been firing some of these systems in peacetime against uh, an Iranian opposition group that was housed uh, in Iraq. It was the MEK bases in Iraq. They had fired, you know, Scud several times in the 90s and as late as 2001, uh, reportedly, uh, at some of these facilities. And then there was this lull. And really, since that time, with the evolution in Iranian national security strategy and the U.S. really coming deeper into the region on both flanks of Iran, 2001 and 2003, on the left and on the right, Af uh, Afghanistan to the east and, and Iraq in 2003 to the west, that you saw Iran really double down on its proxy strategy. And Iran has cultivated this proxy strategy for a reason. It's not just cheap and it's not just effective. Uh, it actually allows Iran to fight without the costs of fighting in a sense that it masks Iran's hands, it can control escalation dynamics better. And one of the main lessons of the Iran-Iraq war was never have a conflict come onto your soil and try to punish an aggressor who does bring a conflict onto your soil extensively and in a long, drawn-out fashion so they don't come onto your soil again. So there is this primacy of territory for the Iranians, for the IRGC, for the, for the nascent Islamic Republic. And they'd invested heavily in this proxy strategy. And so publicizing operations kind of runs counter to the proxy strategy. You know, you're trying to mask your hand, but now you're trying to show your hand. This is very different. Uh, you know, you've used rockets, mortars, IRAMs, you know, uh, things like that. Even more recently, drones, but ballistic missiles, which can traverse miles in less than minutes, carrying much, much, much heavier payloads and, and be systems that can c carry conventional and unconventional warheads, by the way. Uh, and really, these, these things are classified as, as the peak of Iran's weapons of war. And yes, the Islamic Republic has invested in this arc of long-range strike capabilities that on the low tier is RPGs and then mortars and then rockets, and then you grow it up to drones and then more to cruise missiles and then more to ballistic missiles. So this is really the most risky, really the most costly tool to employ. But it's driven by this sense of Iranian invincibility and overconfidence in its ballistic missile arsenal. For two decades, almost, you've had directors of national intelligence under both Republicans and Democrats come to Congress, testify that this is the region's largest arsenal. The Iranians have been, no, have been seeing that 
they've been the cause of that because they've been producing it, but then they've been qualitatively improving these systems, like we talked about, range, accuracy, payload, lethality, survivability, different warheads, um, while making a bunch of other technical advancements for the arsenal of its proxies. And this sense of invincibility leads them to feel more safe at home and leads them to be more risky abroad. And then starting in 2017, they started to push the boundary on this. In 2017, they fired six short-range ballistic missiles at eastern Syria in response to an ISIS terror attack uh, inside Iran. Then in September 2018, they fired, I think, seven short-range ballistic missiles at Kurdish opposition uh, facilities in northern Iraq. Then again, in October 2018, they fired uh, short-range ballistic missiles again at eastern Syria, less than three miles away from where the U.S. was. And this was in the heyday of the Trump administration and maximum pressure. And, and in fact, John Bolton had you know, uh, gone live to issue a threat against the Iranians. Uh, and the, I still remember this quote because it, it, it translated kind of funny in version. The then, the then and current Secretary of the Supreme National Security Council uh, downplayed Bolton's comments as, as comments coming from that mustachioed fellow uh, uh, over there uh, in Washington and that they intentionally... Uh, fired ballistic missiles within three miles uh, of American forces. So these guys are coveting risk. They're not running away from it. These guys are coveting the limelight. They're not running away from it. And the other half of this coin is not just the capabilities that lead them to want to covet it. They're not just overly confident in their capability. They're overly confident in this assessment they have uh, that Washington will not respond decisively, kinetically, or meaningfully. And the final operation before this operation was Iran's response to the killing of Soleimani. And that was really where, rather than firing against a local target, uh, meaning the, the Iraqis or uh, the Kurds or, or, or ISIS positions, alleged ISIS positions, they fired at Americans. And fortunately, no Americans lost their life. There were over 100 traumatic range injuries in the January 2020 strike. It was Iran's largest ballistic missile barrage, 16 ballistic missiles. Uh, 11 of them reportedly were direct hits. Uh, you know, American media has framed this as the largest ballistic missile attack against Americans ever. And it came from the Islamic Republic of Iran overtly using ballistic missiles and from their own territory. And there was no kinetic response. There was no meaningful military response. And the missile commander in Iran at the time, who still is the commander, Admiral uh, Amir Ali Hajizadeh, he's the commander of the aerospace force there. Uh, he has gone live with this conclusion. Uh, he talked about in this very impactful, uh, I would recommend the documentary to anyone who watches, who, who can speak Persian. It's called Deterrent. It's called Boz Darande. It's an IRIB documentary. It's available on YouTube. And at the tail end of it, he's saying that uh, Iran is no con conventional military match for America, but that what it lacks in some capability it can compound with the will and the resolve to use its limited capability more so earlier in the conflict and more effectively. And he cites the lack of a U.S. response after this ballistic missile barrage as proof that this Iranian combination of a moderate but evolving capability, less so than any other aggressor, but growing and greater resolve, greater than any other aggressor, will be enough to deter and punish its adversaries. And that was Iran's logic in January 2020, and that remains Iran's logic now uh, in 2022. You're listening to Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, and I'm talking with Benham Ben Talablu. He is a senior fellow at Foundation for D Defense of Democracies, uh, my colleague there as well, and he focuses on Iranian security policy and uh, political issues. Um, Benham, so you had said that you think that Iran is overconfident in here, but so far we've noted, as you know, as you outlined perfectly, there's five ballistic missile strikes, two of them launched at the U.S. And as of this moment, no response to, to either, particularly that one in January 2020, um, when after we killed Qasem Soleimani, American troops were injured. Look, President Trump just walked away from that and said, we came out on top here, but do you do you consider Iran to be overconfident? And what lessons have the Iranians learned from these strikes uh, without a response from the U.S.? I, I do believe the Iranians are are overconfident here, and we're actually moving to a dangerous area where overconfidence may lead to overreach. You know, I believe that these ballistic missile operations. These are just a sign 
not just a sign of the times, but they're a sign of things to come. Greater overconfidence will mean a lower bar for the threshold of the use of force, which will mean more direct and overt Iranian military engagement in the region. Now, to our friends who, like you and, and, and Tom and everyone else who for decades has looked at the proxy stuff, the terror stuff, the asymmetric stuff, the regional footprints, the, the grassroots level stuff that made and sustained the Islamic Republic as the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism, none of that stuff is going away. Make no mistake, it's not going away. They're compounding that. They're adding on to that low-level asymmetric capability that axis of resistance, that constellation of partners and proxies that they have successfully created or co-opted across at least four or five different war zones in the Middle East. And they're arming them, training them, equipping them, and now even teaching them to produce systems locally on their own territory so they don't have to risk the cost of interceptions or strikes like the Israelis have successfully done across the land bridge that goes from Iraq to Syria to Lebanon. Uh, there's this other half here, which is why the, the Iranians are moving more into the overt space. And they're doing so with some of these most symbolic weapons. And so one reason that may also drive the Iranians here, and it's a, it's a driver for their nuclear program, it's a driver for their space program, but it's certainly a driver for their ballistic missile and cruise missile program, is status. You know, the other side of security, just like in all of these, pro all of these programs, whether it was in the Soviet Union or, or elsewhere around the world, you know, status usually complements security. You know, countries that pursue these costly labor, capital, technical intensive programs also want the social dividends of it. And the Islamic Republic actually loves, they actually love when foreign scholars foreign analysts, particularly Western, particularly Israeli, British, and American experts, tout Iran's evolving missile progress. They cite it routinely. Uh, they, they've, you know, I, I remember actually, uh, they actually, uh, I, I went to go see Uzi Rubin, this foremost Israeli uh, missile expert, speak on Iran's missile program, and there was actually uh, a picture of the event that I was at, <laughs> that the Iranians had screenshotted from the, the, the free publicly available video basically translating without bluffing everything that uh, Uzi had been saying on the evolving missile threat. They're proud of how far they've come under sanctions. And this pride again, is another engine. So while you have more and more iterations of nationalist protest inside Iran, the regime is looking for things to say, here's where we have succeeded. Because in those different iterations of protest, and I'm not saying this is a major driver, but it's an important driver. In these different iterations of protest, Foreign policy has come to be a target by the, by the population. We know the state is on one side, the society is on the other. You have a revolutionary regime, you have a post-revolutionary society. This is a combination that can't really stand, which means there'll be more protests. And really since 2009, but definitely since 2017, you've had a lot more of those anti-regime foreign policy slogans chanted by Iranian protesters. And so the regime has tried to find ways to say, here are the dividends of our foreign policy approach. It's not really fooling anyone, but at least at the elite level, within what's left of their factions, they are still trying to make this case that, look, here's where our investments have paid off. And clearly, the ballistic missile one is one where they have quality, quantity, numerical superiority, proliferating these systems. The, the regime has succeeded in this regard. And so they're looking to get the follow-on political benefits of it. And by using them more, they're hoping to get the deterrent dividends of it. And I, I borrowed in this forthcoming ballistic missile monograph, I have a, uh, a parallel between Iranian political figures that a friend of mine who is at Carnegie, uh, Karim Sajidpour, employed to describe the relationship between Qasem Soleimani and Javad Zarif for the regime. You know, Qasem Soleimani, my, my friend Karim said, is the sword. Uh, uh, Zarif is the shield. Zarif kind of blocks the foreign pressure. Uh, Soleimani uh, is the sword that, you know, once the pressure is blocked, can more easily keep fighting. And ballistic missiles in this regard can be both a sword and a shield, but at a minimum, when they accomplish the baseline objectives for the regime, when you test them more, when you parade them more, when you transfer them more, and certainly when you use them more to show their efficacy, as we just saw recently, you get that shield effect. You get people being deterred by the accuracy, the range, the payload. And once you have that deterrence in place, that kind of becomes Iran's own iron dome so that everything you have focused on, Bill, those terror networks can go unabated, unpressured, unadulterated, and be forced to have the West or the local partners in the region accommodate 
those networks. If it's illicit finance in UAE, turn a blind eye. If it's Shia militias in Iraq, turn a blind eye. If it's the genocidal Assad regime in Syria, turn a blind eye. If it's the damage that Lebanese Hezbollah has wrought to the Lebanese state and Lebanese society, turn a blind eye. Because ultimately, this is the point. This is Iran is trying to use these weapons as part of a larger, more coherent foreign and security policy to get America out of the region, to force accommodation by pro-American states in the region, and to increasingly put the knife at U.S. partners in the region like the Israelis, like the Saudis, like the Emiratis, like the Bahrainis, to say the way through is to accommodating us. And perhaps even then the regime would be overconfident. Some of them may even lead to striking those adversaries because they feel that there is no foreign backer. So we are moving in a very dangerous place, and overconfidence is one of the engines that's getting them there. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but I think it deserved this, the breadth and depth show how we got here. Benham, no such thing. That's why I have you on, so hear what you have to say. Put uh, put the nuclear weapons on top of their ballistic missiles, and then you see what that shield lo- really looks like. Oh, yeah. And, you know, oh, yeah. unless we, you know, if you think that that's bluster, look what's happening in Ukraine right now. Look at the hesitation of U.S. and NATO t- just to provide uh, – a higher level of weaponry other than anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles. A lot of discuss should we send, allow European countries to send MiGs and, um, surface to air missiles is afraid of escalation, afraid of, and as well, we should be right. I mean, we don't want to create a situation where the, for the potential of nuclear war. And that's the type of shield I think that Iran is ultimately working towards. So actually, b- before we get to that, it's, it's very interesting to note when you look at the, the Washington foreign policy community, and this is occasionally a conversation of those uh, lengthy phone calls that we get to have uh, together, Bill. You know, there, there are some folks who will be for entertaining greater risk and greater escalation dynamics in places where there is real nuclear doctrine, uh, uh, real nuclear weapons at play, uh, like Russia and Ukraine, for instance. But when you look at those same sets of analysts, and I'm not trying to name names, I'm not trying to shame anyone here, but it's, just, it's very interesting to note the risk tolerance uh, in Ukraine by some folks and the risk aversion over countering Iran by other folks. The whole point of coveting risk on in, in a country like Iran is that so you don't let it get to the position that Bill just said, which is you should sink the costs of a somewhat riskier policy, of a somewhat more confrontational, aggressive repositioning-like policy vis-a-vis the Islamic Republic to prevent them from getting that eventuality of not just these increasingly capable missiles, but these increasingly capable missiles that could be potentially chipped with nuclear weapons. And here I want to do a a footnote to my footnote and talk about uh, the Iran-Iraq war again, because Iran did suffer major chemical weapon attacks by Saddam during the Iran-Iraq war. But there is also documentary evidence put out by the DIA, and there's also documentary evidence put out by the CIA, and there's also documentary evidence more recently by state that together show that at this same time, despite Iran always talking about not having used WMD uh, and having a fatwa against the use of nuclear uh, weapons, or the production or, or use of nuclear weapons, in the Iran-Iraq war, Saddam's use of chemical weapons had spurred Iran to experiment with chemical agents. It did not at all experiment at the scale and scope that Saddam did, but still, there was proof by the CIA that Iran was developing chemical agents. Then there is a post-war assessment by the DIA that shows starting in April 1987, Iran began to selectively employ these chemical agents. Then a much more recent State Department report has showed that Iran actually transferred these agents to Libya for its war against Chad at the tail end of the Iran-Iraq war. I think that was a decade-long war, the war against Chad. The Iran-Iraq war was only eight years, but so it was near the end of that war, so the timelines overlapped. And we talked already about Libya, the Iran-Libya missile connection. So just as Saddam's border strikes drove Iran to respond, as they say, in kind, responding in kind, Saddam's scud strikes drove Iran to respond in kind. Saddam's chemical weapons drove Iran to respond in kind. And ultimately here, this latter, this experimentation with long-range strike capabilities, with WMD, and with the deterrent dividends of both WMD and long-range strike capabilities, was not lost on Iran after it fought the Iran-Iraq war. That was ingrained deeper and harder because, as you know, there's a there's a book here by by uh, 
the scholar Ken Pollock, I have uh, on my bookshelf, the epilogue of one of his earlier books on Iran is a really fascinating epilogue to read because it talks about his time in the agency and how after the Iran-Iraq war, he was just this lowly military analyst in, in, in the agency, and he was watching Iran rebuild its arsenal after the war. And the curious thing was that he was wondering why, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing the end of his book here, he was wondering why uh, Iran wasn't arming itself to fight Iraq again. Based on what it was doing, it looked like Iran was arming itself to deter an attack by a much larger outsized power. He was basically watching Iran prepare itself to build exactly that shield that you had talked about, Bill. Anti-ship ballistic missiles, longer-range strike capabilities, keep America and these other forces operating from a distance, meanwhile cultivating those other tools to continue its revolutionary foreign and security policy. So you're totally right to bring up the, the Russia-Ukraine nexus. You're totally right to talk about the fear that these conventional capabilities can move very quickly into the unconventional realm. And given Iran's chemical weapons experience and the, the, the deterrent lessons learned the hard way in the Iran-Iraq war, this is why they're not going to be giving this up anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's really what um, is misunderstood about all this. You know, the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action didn't – Iran didn't forsake – developing nuclear weapons it merely was kicked the can was kicked down the road um it didn't forsake the development of ballistic missiles it just put some limitations on it over time i don't profess to be an expert on this ben i i certainly defer to you on all that but um you know we're currently the the biden administration is currently trying to re revive this this nuclear deal with iran and yet we get a ballistic missile strike that ostensibly is against the U.S. consulate. Again, we can argue about what that target is, but it sure as hell was close enough. You know, why would Iran do this? What is, what's the motivation for doing this? Uh, I'll tell you this, it doesn't appear the U.S. is phased by this in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't seem to be a concern. Is, is this part of their calculation? I mean, I, I think you're right. And in, in this sense, it, it leads to that, unfortunately, negative second force, which will drive more missile use, which is their impression of American resolve as being a, on the decline, their impression of American staying power as being on the decline, and their impression, you know, tied to that, you know, JCPOA debate, which is needlessly very politically toxic here in Washington. Um, their impression of that is that the Biden administration kind of wants this agreement at all costs. So they can afford to fire. Uh, at whatever, at whomever. Literally, right now, the U.S. government is having to take money it appropriated to the State Department and cut out some of those appropriated monies and make sure it's paying for the safety and security of passive administration officials because Iran continues to harbor the capability and intent to harm them and perhaps do unforeseen things like kidnap or kill them. You know, we all know about the threats against FDD that Iran has made starting in 2019. There's lots of other threats that Iran has made against Iranian Americans, dual nationals, there's still hostages in Iran today. This is uh, par for the course uh, with this regime. So when you layer on something like the JCPOA, that doesn't actually have much in the way of physical prohibitions. It has a lot in the way of political prohibitions, promissory notes as to what Iran can or can't do. You know, when you talk about, you know, one of the big things, the deal that deal proponents will say, which is that the agreement in the preamble and kind of affirmed through Iranian compliance with the deal, quote unquote, is that Iran will not develop nuclear weapons or Iran promises not to develop nuclear weapons. I don't need the deal for that. I actually have a much more important, much larger non-proliferation agreement called the NPT that Iran is a signatory of. Uh, I need I need that to be enforced. I need I need compliance with that, not this political agreement which can come and go. And as you said, on a good day is just kicking the can down the road. And there may have been an argument in a time like 2015 where the Obama administration sold this transact transformationally that perhaps Khamenei might die in a decade. Uh, that perhaps, uh, you know, Iran would look politically different due to protests and revolution in a decade, or that, you know, the thesis that they publicly promulgated, the empowering of the moderates uh, would lead to a change. Uh, none of that has happened. Khamenei is still at the helm. Uh, protests have happened, but the regime has brutally and violently uh, killed and repressed protests. Uh, unfortunately, the U.S. Uh, has not been great there. It's done better in the past few years, but it hasn't been the best. Uh, and then lastly, there were no moderates to empower. That theory fell flat on its face. 
And now you have a, a, a regime and an ultra hardline government led by the likes of Ibrahim Raisi, which leads the most sanctioned cabinet in the history of the Islamic Republic. That is an achievement given who's been in past cabinets in the Islamic Republic. You know, Raisi has more sanctioned folks than Ahmadinejad. Raisi himself is subject to sanctions. And based on what we're hearing about this deal, he will be sanctions free if the penalty that uh, people are talking about, which is a penalty against the Supreme Leader's network of appointees, uh, ends up being removed in this allegedly nuclear-only deal. Um, so while there may have been uh, some kind of selling point for the deal then, I think now you have to ask yourself, if it was bad by the known nuclear program of a decade ago and the known missile program of a decade ago, and we paid for that decade, well, now we have less time on the clock and we're allegedly paying more. And the programs have grown considerably. Why are we doing this again? We just went through the world's biggest and perhaps most dangerous social science experiment. To me, it's exactly what uh, former CIA Director Brenner said about the U.S. leaving the deal. Uh, and he called it the height of folly. I think going back into this for purely political reasons is the height of folly, particularly when we know exactly why Iran wants the deal. Iran wants the deal for two reasons. All of these domestic debates that I talked about uh, are very clear for the Iranians. They're very, very clear. We don't need to translate them to Persian. It's clear now the way the left and the right, the Republicans, Democrats, isolationists, internationalists, it's clear the way these pieces of the puzzle are happening because we've had our domestic politics be so public for the past decade. And Iran wants to deal for economic reasons. That's why it's stressing to front load it, to get the cash up front, to get the economic benefits up front, to be reconnected to the international marketplace. It doesn't need European investment, but it does want risk-tolerant Asian investment, particularly Chinese investment. China has been the largest licit and illicit supporter of Iran through oil sales, through oil exports, sorry, through oil imports, exports by Iran, imports by China. They have continued to bolster these programs by those payments of those exports during the Obama era, during the Trump era, and during the Biden era. They will continue to do so. And on the second side, the deal, as we mentioned, doesn't actually close down these facilities. It tries to reconfigure them. It doesn't destroy centrifuges. It tries to put them in storage, and it comes up with a schedule to bring them back online. And it actually watered down very good international prohibitions on ballistic missile testing, changing the language, subjecting it to a very loyally interpretation about nuclear versus non-nuclear delivery systems, and then ultimately putting a permanent ban on ballistic missile testing into an eight-year ban, a ban which Iran has not abided by anyway, and the UN and the US and the EU have failed to enforce. So this is really a nightmare scenario, and it's just odd that we seem intent to pay for it. Yeah, I, I can't understand. Look, I'm the last person that wants war with Iran, particularly given our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, our inability, our lack. Of, look, you you had said it early on, Benham. It's it's all about will, and Iran has shown it has the will to see its nuclear program through, its ballistic program through, its, its support of proxies, its its interference in in within the region, even in South America, um, but. This, this idea, and, and look, I applaud efforts to come to a non-military solution, but this solution, the, this joint comprehensive plan of action is not a solution. And I think you perfectly laid out why. Um, it, it just seems to me that we've, we haven't learned any lessons of the last several decades. We're, you know, negotiating with terrorist regimes, with, with terrorist groups. We did this in Afghanistan. We, with the Taliban, you know, show me a moderate Taliban. You don't want to show me a, 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 you know, show, show me the moderates in Iran, like name them. I mean, you know, people come up with names and they're often just as bad as the alternative, the so-called radicals. So I, I don't really understand this. The, the Iranians really have shown a will in my estimation to, you know, to, to operate under strict sanction regime. Um, we have to start questioning, is that an, is sanctions enough? I mean, we're doing this to the Russians. Maybe the Russians have witnessed what the, what the, uh, how the Iranians have bypassed sanctions and continued to develop their programs. They no doubt hurt, but is this enough? Sometimes, you know, the diplomacy, the sanctions regimes and economic warfare, things of that nature, is it really enough when you're dealing with a regime that has the will to 
to uh, deal with the with these types. I realize I'm not asking you a question here, but I guess my ultimate question here. No, that's a good question. I'm, that's a, that is a good question. I mean, but you know, so you know, it seems to me that every, that that the everyone seems to be banking on. Well, the radicals won't be there. It's you know, moderates or the Iranian people will take over. But we haven't seen this, and I think history shows that people, you know, people who don't want to live under oppressive regimes often do. Um, we go to Cuba, North Korea, Soviet Union for sixty years. You know, we can go on and on, and you know, the Iran since nineteen seventy nine. Um, you know, I, you know, there's we, we there's no shortage of oppressive regimes that hold on to power. What do you how do you what do you think the odds are of an uprising in Iran, a, a revolution that ousts the the Iranian radicals and their moderates? Well, it's a mouthful of a question because I also want to tack on the, the sanctions success, sanctions failure, you know, do sanctions also work question. Um, <clears throat> but first things first. This is the Middle East. And also, in general, this is foreign policy in the 21st century. So both those things lead me to conclude, if X, then Y. Uh, if X, then Y. If change, then let's be honest, it can always get worse. This is the Middle East. This is the 21st century. This is the beginning of a potentially multipolar era. It can always get worse. Things can always get worse. That should be a humbling lesson uh, of the past few decades of the U.S. experience in the region and of the way the world is being run. In the, in the past few decades. So always note, things can always get worse. Now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proud Iranian American. I'll say this both from a personal and the, you know, professional standpoint. I do hope uh, that uh, there is a change, like a domestic uh, evolution where you can have, you know, a peaceful uprising, but we've seen multiple iterations of nationalist protest and protesters who maybe two and a decade and a half ago, a uh, little under a decade and a half ago were on the reform side in 2009 with the great movements, now decidedly on the regime change side. I don't think Washington has really grasped with this transformation that there is a greater critical mass of folks inside Iran actively seeking uh, regime change. And, you know, they are bravely, and they have bravely come out and protested. I remember in November 2019, I, I paraphrased the statement of the, the Washington Post, the advertisement for the Washington Post, which was democracy dies in the darkness, uh, I said, well, the Iranian people are dying in the darkness because uh, I think for about six to seven days, the regime had cut off the internet. It was hard to send and receive videos and messages. And it ended up being the most violent crackdown that they had orchestrated uh, in their history since the 1979 protest. You know, Khamenei has uh, reported to have said, do whatever it takes to end it. And it's clear what whatever it takes mean. Jailing, kidnapping, disappearances, torture, prison beatings, using weapons of war against your own population, really despicable things. And the regime is coarsening. And you see that in, in the quote-unquote uh, election of Raisi this summer. In 2013, there were people uh, who were talking about how many PhDs were in then quote-unquote moderate President Rouhani's cabinet. Now we're talking about how many sanctioned folks are in Raisi's cabinet. You know, the mask has come off, the lipstick has come off of the pig. And just like the regime is more comfortable firing its missiles directly, it is more comfortable having the face of the hardest of the hardliners out there negotiating with you directly. It's not taboo for the regime, even these ultra hardliners, to want to sit across from America or at least to belittle America in the way they do now. They make America sit at the kitty table. Biden and the Biden administration accepted for America not to be in the room in Vienna since April 2021, as it's trying to resurrect an even worse version of this fatally flawed deal. Uh, the Iranians have literally tried to make, just through diplomatic processes alone, the superpower into a supplicant, having America sit at the kitty table and across the hall in a different hotel, in a different room and whatever. And we've gone along with it. We've, we've played this game for them. And this game, this is why when we talk about deterrence, all these little things matter. It's not just that there needs to be a military response to something. It's that the impression we send through our rhetoric, through our behavior, through our military posture in the region, through the support that we have for our allies, through what we need to do kinetically sometimes, all of that matters. It's like a mosaic that feeds into the regime's impression of to how resolute are you and how willing are you to counter them. Because they will always press. They will always press their advantage. That's in the nature of not just this regime, but in the nature of adversaries. You're always testing to find the limits, what is enforceable, what can you get away with, what can you make the other side settle for less for. 
this is foreign policy. This is mach politik. This is the really hard stuff. And we've had successes against the regime before. Even when you look at little isolated instances, the regime has backed down. You know, I've talked about the Iran-Iraq war a lot. I'll mention it again briefly. This is a war that uh, the regime fought as a total war. And, you know, for about seven of the eight years, the founding father of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khomeini, kept saying, war, war until victory. His goal was trying to create an Islamic Republic in Baghdad. Ultimately, he failed. Uh, he, the regime is now close to that goal now after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. It's, it's, done, it's found a different way through rather than uh, through hard power. It's, it's done this actually through exploiting, you know, U.S., you know, vacuums in the region. Uh, but it tried to literally export the revolution by military force to uh, its neighbor and try to punish Saddam for the 1980 invasion from the 1982 to 1988 portions of that war. And despite saying war until victory, the way the war was fought at the end, and again, you know, the, the U.S. had actually given Saddam intelligence. Saddam was buying a bunch of foreign planes and advanced, you know, French fighter jets and equipment. Uh, Saddam was using chemical weapons. Uh, Saddam had the support of the GCC. Uh, Iran wasn't alone, really, per se, but it was much more isolated than, uh, you know, compared to Saddam. And Iran faced battlefield defeats. It faced economic shortages. It faced, you know, popular pressure. Uh, and it realized it couldn't win. So logistically, when all the balance was arrayed against the regime, the regime was forced to settle for less. And the regime ended up accepting a UN ceasefire resolution that it thumbed its it thumbed its nose at, or thumbed its whatever they're saying is thumbed its teeth at, bit its teeth at, thumbed its nose at, whatever the Shakespearean analogy is. Uh, a year before, thumbed its nose. Okay, I thought. Uh, a, a year before, and Khomeini likened accepting that resolution to drinking from a poison chalice. So for lack of a better word here, the real art of the deal with the Iranians is not just about military force. It's about showing that you have enough skin in the game and will to stay in the game uh, to force them to settle for less. And that's what I think we need to be focusing on. It's not just sanctions, yes or no. It's not you know, you know, regime change, yes or no. It's how do you get these guys, which are so intent and increasingly capable, to settle for less. That's the real art of our foreign policy. That's what I think should be the main orienting thing of the U.S. in the in the region in 2022 and beyond. Uh, fascinating, Benham. I, I think that's a great stopping point here. Do you have anything else to add? Or no, thank you again for having me. It's a real pleasure. No, it, it's fantastic. I couldn't agree with you more. It, it you know, it also. I just go back to it. Ultimately, boils down the will. If you're going to impose sanctions, you have to see it through. If you're going to put a, a a sanctions regime on its nuclear program, you have to see it through. Economic, any, all of these things, they can be done. But I think what we, but what we have shown is that we can be distracted. We're not willing to see through. And, you know, an invasion in Iraq, we're willing to run from Afghanistan. And, you know, that's a whole nother topic, which I've discussed here at times, you know, Iran's support for the Taliban. We, you know, we, when we start losing on that front, Iran is emboldened and they, they believe that they have the upper hand. They, and I think one of the, by the way, I think one of the key things they did learn from the war between, um, with Iraq is that, you know what? We need to be really careful about confronting militarily. You know, going one on one, going head to head against either a near peer or someone greater. And that's where the proxy strategies started really exactly. developing and things of that nature. And this is where the use of the ballistic missiles now you're getting back into the a more advanced conventional realm. I just think they I think they're emboldened. I, uh, whether it's overconfident or supremely confident, we're going to find out. Um, I think given our showing in the Middle East, it's, uh, you know, um, I, th I think they have good reason to be confident at least this point in time. Yeah. I, I get, a, I get a, a questions a lot on are the Iranians rational? And, uh, unfortunately, if, you know, if you, not that rationality is, is good or bad, but just looking at them ends means rational. Do they use certain means towards certain ends? Given our tracker, given what we've put out there, they're hyper rational. My fear is not just irrationality, some crazy individual with a nuke. My fear is this over rationality, this, you know, to borrow from, I think, uh, former director Hayden's book, Playing to the Edge, people who are so studying your every move, your every word, uh, your track record, obviously through a colored ideological lens, but still, and they are willing to build on that and play to the edge 
and go toe-to-toe with you, even when they know they may not win because they're counting on something else that is not in the realm of capability, that they're counting on the realm of will and resolve, this immaterial force. That's what I'm afraid of. And they're building those skyscrapers of immaterial forces based on our real track record of what we say and what we do and what we don't say and what we don't do. Yeah, Ben, and I'll, I'll make one more quick comment. You talked about irrational, rational. We see this with with Putin, right? There are people, he's a madman, he's a this. It's easy to label our enemies as crazy and irrational and things like that. It's it's a it's a good excuse to for you to not recognize what they're actually doing. To, yes. to not understand your enemies. And I think that's that's a very, very dangerous position to take. Um Iran is very, as you noted, very calculated in in how, in what it does um, in the region when it confronts the United States. Does that mean it makes always makes the right decision? It doesn't. You know, same thing with Putin, right? Did Putin was Putin? Did he make the right decision to invade Ukraine? We're going to find out, but I don't think he did it from an irrational basis. And that's that's what we need to understand. That's why you know really really dislike that type of analysis because it's simplistic and it makes us feel good. Exactly. It's not, are they irrational? Yes or no. It's are the, how risk tolerant are they? Uh, that's, that's the best, the better question. It's about risk, not rationality. Absolutely. Benham, always a pleasure. Thank you for thank joining. You, thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just, you know, I, I tried to end this, uh, uh, you know, tried to wrap up about seven minutes ago, but you keep Sorry. planting ideas in my head. No, nah, it's great. This is this is why we do it, Benham. Thanks again, and thanks everyone for uh, joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder: you can find us on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive review. If you're on YouTube, smash that like button, as the kids say. Thanks again, and we'll see you again soon.